was watching this week, uh, I've mentioned, mentioned the last couple of weeks some of the movies that I enjoy watching, and I've mentioned Saving Private Ryan and Apollo 13, and I happen to be watching Ocean's Eleven this week. Now, I don't know if you've seen any of the Ocean's trilogy, but I happen to like the first one the best, Ocean's Eleven. It stars uh, George Clooney and Brad Pitt and a lot of other guys that are, that are in this, and they conspire together to... Uh, to rob a couple of co casinos out in Las Vegas. Now, I, I, I don't condone their behavior, just to let you know that. Uh, but at the same time, the, the, the dialogue between them is just, is just classic. So if you're looking for some witty dialogue, if you have sort of a dry sense of humor, then the Ocean's movies may be for you. One scene in Ocean's Eleven strikes me as particularly relevant as we begin a new series this morning on Ecclesiastes. There's one scene where they're recruiting their team to, uh, to, to participate in this particular robbery, and they need a variety of people and, and skills and so on, and, and they target this older man who has a particular level of skill in playing roles that can distract people and so on, and, and Brad Pitt and his character goes to, uh, to meet this older man, and he meets him at a dog track where they do greyhound racing. Now, I don't know if you've seen anything like that before, but of course they've got several dogs that are just very impressive creatures, very strong and certainly very fast, and they drop the gate, and then around the track goes this little rabbit attached to an arm that just keeps going around the track, and the dogs just chase it. They never catch it. You know, the worst thing the dog could ever do is catch the rabbit, because then they're done, and there's no more, nothing else to chase. But they, they do that, and of course it's like a horse race, and people bet on it, and they, they bet to, to see which dog is going to win. It hit me this week as I was preparing for this particular series that that life can be a lot like that dog chasing that rabbit around the track. Sometimes maybe you feel as if you're chasing something you can never catch. You're going after something you can never achieve. And you simply feel as if, when I say the, that illustration, you feel as if the gates drop, the bell has been rung, and you're running. But what you're chasing is something you can never catch. It's always just right out in front of you, and you keep going, and you keep striving and going after it, but you can't ever seem to catch it. And all the while, you have on the sidelines people just cheering you on. Keep going. Good job. Way to go. You're just seemingly entertainment for them as you just chase whatever it is that seems to be elusive out in front of you. I really think that in some ways, that's what the book of Ecclesiastes is about. Chasing something that you'll never catch. And so I want you to turn with me to that particular book. Ecclesiastes starts with an ECC. It's right after Proverbs. As I've told you before, and if you were a guest with us, maybe this will be the first time you hear it. If you're not familiar with the Bible... Please do not let that stop you from bringing a Bible to church if you have one. If you don't have one, let us get you one. And don't let it stop you from turning where we're going to be. You may not be familiar with the Bible, and that's okay. Turn to the table of contents, look up the book of Ecclesiastes, and find where it is and go to that particular page number. The book of Ecclesiastes. We're, we're beginning a new series this morning called Chasing the Wind. Now, I don't know if you've ever read the book of Ecclesiastes or have been familiar with it in any way. There are probably uh, many of us here who, even if we haven't read the book of Ecclesiastes, we're familiar with it through a song from way back, uh, I believe it was probably in the late 60s or 70s, 
called, uh, you know, for everything there is a time or season, turn, turn, turn. You know, the birds, I think, was the, the, the group that came out with that song. That's from Ecclesiastes chapter 3. And so maybe, maybe at least in pop culture you know a little bit about that. But let me tell you why we're going to do this particular series. I really believe that in our world today, we, we need the message of the book of Ecclesiastes just like they did back in ancient Israel. Because most of what happens in our society, and I would venture to say, based upon no empirical data whatsoever, but most people, I really believe, are just chasing the wind in life. They're going after something they can never catch, and probably pursuing the wrong things in the first place, that if they caught it, it would ruin them. I really believe that most people are going after life that way. I really believe that our society promotes this chasing of the wind, and it doesn't take much observation to figure out that that's true. Just watch TV. Just watch commercials, and you'll see how much chasing of the wind there really is. I really believe this is a timely message for a society that we live in and for individuals even here in our church who are chasing the wind. So this is a, this is a series uh, that is for those who feel as if you're that dog running around the track. And you can never catch what it seems to be that you're chasing. I, I figure since we've got our college students that will be back in force here in the next few weeks, this is a timely message for people of that age as well. Younger folks who have the rest of their lives seemingly ahead of them, and what will you choose to chase? You can continue, as society will promote, to chase the wind, or you can make a decision beginning this morning, to chase something different. Let me tell you how you can pray for this series. Maybe you say, I'm not really sure that's for me. I lived my life, and I look back, and I think, you know, I pretty well have accomplished the right things. Maybe you're that person. I mean, you may be very rare, but maybe you're that person. You can pray for this series in a couple of ways. I would appreciate your prayers throughout the week as I just try to study and figure what does this mean and understand it and how then can it be communicated to an audience that really needs to hear the truth of this book. You can also pray for those who need to be here. I, I'm not going to tell you to go coerce somebody into coming to church, but I think we've probably all got folks in our lives that we say, you know what, that person needs to hear that message. I'm not asking you to tell them, come hear my preacher. I, that, that, doesn't, that doesn't appeal to me whatsoever. But come hear the word of God, absolutely. And so maybe you've got someone in your life that you say, you know, I've been praying for this person, or now they're on my mind as you mention those things. And, and that's the person maybe I'm going to begin to pray for, that God will open a door, or I'll be bold enough, either one, to invite them to come at some point and hear what Ecclesiastes has to say. Let me show you a few things before we really kind of dig into this that I think will be important for us to lay some groundwork. When we start a new book of the Bible, particularly one in the Old Testament, we've got to, to know some things about it or it's not going to make any sense whatsoever. You realize that the Bible was not written to 21st century America. Shocking news, I'm sure. But I hope you understand that. And I say that a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but I say it also because there are some folks in our world who would pick up Ecclesiastes and immediately, immediately think it was written directly to them in our time. It was not. It was written directly to someone in a particular time, but not directly to us. So what we have to do is figure out who was it written to, what was it written about, and then how can we study it in light of those things. So here's, I'm going to make you, uh, or ask you to make a few marks either on the back of your bulletin, just some notes uh, that, that are not filling the blanks, all right, not yet, uh, or in your Bible. And I, and I mean this, if you're not a person who, who uh, feels comfortable marking up your Bible, I understand that. 
Uh, I personally don't see anything wrong with it, but if that's, if that's not your thing, no problem. Make a note of this somewhere, though. Uh, th- there's a structure to the book of Ecclesiastes, and I want you to make a note of this somewhere. If you look, if you've got your Bible open, look at verses 1 through 11. Now, I'm not going to read all these verses to you, but, but look at verses 1 through 11. If you want to somehow mark that, that's the prologue, the, the beginning, the introduction, so to speak, the prologue. There's a short prologue from verses 1 through 11 in chapter 1, which, and we'll look at this next week, which sets the stage for essentially what the rest of the book will kind of explain. So that's what you'll get. If you, if you look at that, that's the first section. So mark it somehow. If you get a little bracket you want to put in your Bible, just mark it prologue or right on the back of your bulletin. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 11 is the prologue. Now that's going to help you kind of understand because what happens then from chapter 1, verse 12, all the way through chapter 12, verse 7, what you have is a long monologue, a speech, essentially. You have the opinions of someone in, and maybe your translation will, will put the Hebrew word, kohelet. In the version that I'm looking at, it says the teacher. For others, it may say the preacher. That word kohelet is simply a word that means one who assembles, and so the English uh, words kind of guess, is it a teacher, is it a preacher? But from, from chapter 1, verse 12, all the way through chapter 12, verse 7, you have this monologue. You have the words of the teacher, the words of the preacher, however it is that your version translates it. And then if you turn, now I, I, granted you can't put a bracket around several pages, but if you turn, flip over to the end of the book, chapter 12, and you can bracket this, it'll be pretty easy, beginning at... And, and some, you, you'll see your headings in the Bible there. Some versions will put it, at, at, you know, after verse 7. Some kind of leave verse 8 sort of floating out there a little bit. But as best I can gather, beginning in verse 8 and running through verse 14, you have the epilogue. You have the conclusion. So you've got chapter 1, the first 11 verses, the prologue, the introduction. Then you have the main body of what's going to be said from chapter 1, verse 12, through chapter 12, verse 7. And then you have the epilogue. You want to back at that and just put conclusion or epilogue. That's what you've got. So that's the structure. If you're going to read this, and I would strongly encourage you to do that as we go through this, and I would encourage you to begin with just reading the whole thing. Take you about uh, 45 minutes or so, an hour, whatever it would take you, and just sit and read all 12 chapters. And then as we move through section by section, maybe go back and study that just a little bit. So next week, we'll just as a heads up, we'll look at verses 1 through 11. Now, here's, here's part of the reason why I give you that particular structure. is because it's sometimes difficult, unless you know the structure of the book and who's speaking where, it's sometimes difficult to know who wrote it. And who wrote it makes all the difference. There are two voices that you'll see within this particular book. If you, if you want to, uh, you can underline or maybe highlight somehow uh, whatever it is your, your version says, the teacher, the preacher, that's one of the voices. Okay, so, so you're going to get a lot of information from this particular person. But I want you to make sure that you note that the epilogue is a second voice. It's not the voice of the teacher or the preacher. It's a second voice who is actually the author of the book. So essentially what you have before chapter 12, verse 8, and sort of including it because it's a quote, you have the quoted words of this teacher or preacher. And then you have a short commentary by the person who actually wrote the book on all that the teacher or preacher has said and taught. All right, so I hope you're following me. 
Two voices in the book. One is this teacher or preacher. The other is the actual author. And you get the main, main words of the, of the true author of the book in the epilogue. Who then is the teacher? Who is the preacher? The traditional view would say that Solomon, King Solomon, who followed his father David to the throne of Israel, would be this person of wisdom who's going to spout all of these things off. And essentially what the traditional view holds is that Solomon is looking back on his life and reflecting upon his chasing of the wind and saying, don't do this. It's meaningless. Don't do what, what I did. Now, there's some problems, unfortunately, with just assuming that Solomon is the author. And it won't change the meaning of the book, even if he's not. But some of the problems, and I'm giving you this as just information. Again, I won't give all this to you next week, all right, just so you know. A little history lesson for you. Uh, the problem, one of the problems is that most people who study this stuff would agree that this book was written at a time later than when Solomon actually lived. So they, there's a little bit of discrepancy there. Now, wait a minute. It seems as if the language and, and the way that it's written and the, the situation it addresses is at a different time than Solomon. If you think about when Solomon reigned in Israel, it was a time of, of incredible prosperity. I mean, he was the wealthiest, wisest man who probably has ever lived in both categories. And yet what we see in the book of Ecclesiastes is this ruin and meaninglessness and waste. And it just doesn't seem to line up even on that. Also, uh, you, you have this uh, in verse 1 of chapter 1, the words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now, of course, that alludes to Solomon, son of David, king in Jerusalem. But why would he use a nickname? I would not just say, my name is Solomon, and I used to be king in Israel, and I'm going to tell you some things. Typically, if you're the king, why would you use a nickname? It really doesn't make that much sense. And then if you look in verse 12 of chapter 1, he says, I, the teacher, have been or was, in some translations, king over Israel and Jerusalem. There was never a time that we know of when Solomon was older and was not still king. So why would he put it in past tense if he's actually the author? I was the king at some point. And then, verse 16, look, I have amassed wisdom far beyond all those who were over Jerusalem before me. How many people ruled in Israel or in Jerusalem before King Solomon? Does anybody know? How many? Two. Saul and David. Well, it's not really that, that grand to say, I've, I'm wiser, I've amassed more knowledge than all who've ruled before me. How many were the two? It doesn't make a whole lot of sense that he would take pride in that. So it seems to be that maybe Solomon is not the author. It doesn't change the, the meaning of the book. It may be, however, that this particular author uses these words from the teacher, and the teacher in some way is pretending or supposing himself to be in the position of Solomon, at least in the beginning of the book, talking about uh, wisdom and wealth and pleasure and other things that may be sought as sources of meaning. Now, the only, only part of the book that does refer to Solomon in any way or alludes to him is the first part, and then it goes on to sort of take an outsider's view of the court. I give you all of that stuff because I think it's important to, to note who wrote it, uh, when were they writing, and, and why, and so on. Now, if you're going to read this book, let me give you a few tips on how, how to go about reading it. First of all, expect to be shocked. Uh, it, it is a shocking book, and I don't mean that uh, in, in any kind of uh, way that it's going to say things that are offensive necessarily, but it's going to say some things that may seem to contradict the rest of Scripture. 
it's going to say even that wisdom is futile, that it's, that it's pointless to be too righteous. It's going to say those things. And so it's going to be a little bit shocking. If you read that, you think, what in the world is he talking about? But I want you to remember as you read it, there are two voices. There is the voice of the teacher. Then there's the voice of the author who uses the voice of the teacher for his own purposes, as you see in the epilogue. And he, this second wise man, is the one who controls the meaning of the book. So make sure you read the epilogue very closely. Don't miss that part, which is why I encourage you to read the whole thing all at once. If you've read the book of Job, then you understand that there's a middle part to the book of Job where his friends give him all sorts of advice that is absolutely wrong. If you were to pick up in the middle of the book of Job and read that for devotional reading, and his friends tell Job, well, you must have sinned, you must have done something wrong to bring all of this misery and, and hardship on yourself, you're going to immediately start to think, well, I guess I've done something wrong. I need to search my heart for what's going on here, and I need to apologize to the Lord for all these things so he'll remove all this junk from my life. If you pick it up in the middle and don't understand that all that stuff is bad advice, then you'll miss the whole point of the book of Job. In a similar way, the book of Ecclesiastes, if you just pick it up in the middle and you see meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. There is no point to life under the sun. Life is hard and then you die, essentially. That's the, that's the message from the teacher. You're going to think, oh my goodness, I thought the Bible was sort of uh, to be encouraging. I thought the Bible was su supposed to kind of help me be pointed toward God. This just seems to really be depressing. If you don't understand the two voices, if you don't get that and know how to read it, you're going to miss the whole point of the book. So the message of the book is not found in the words of the teacher, but in the words of the author who uses the words of the teacher for his purposes. Today, I just want to give you an introduction, an overview of the contents of the book. I said all that I've said so far to set up and sort of give you a launching point for here's how to approach this particular book. So let's look at some things that are in this particular book, wonderful, great book of Scripture, that can be a little bit confusing and frustrating if you're not careful. Let's look first at some repeated phrases. These are some things, if you read this book, you're going to notice in one translation or another, it'll say something like, everything is futile. Everything is meaningless or something like that. This, this phrase will be repeated. So essentially, as I said, the message from the teacher, if you just want to boil it, boil it all the way down, is life is full of trouble and then you die. That's really what he's talking about. Now, that, again, you see how that can be very confusing. That doesn't seem to be the message of the overall content of Scripture. He's going to use this word futile, which has this idea of nothingness and emptiness and temporariness and absurdity. Life is just absurd. You can't understand it. It's unfathomable. It's an enigma. You can't really get your mind around it. He's going to talk about a lot of those things. He's going to say some things that are futile. You just want to write down these references, feel free. I'll, I'll probably reference the verses this week, just so you know, the verses won't be on the screen because there's a bunch of different ones that I'll reference. So just write down the reference or look at it with me as we go through it. He's going to say, look at verse 17 of chapter 1. I applied my mind to know wisdom and knowledge, madness and folly. I learned that this, too, is a pursuit of the wind. Essentially, this is also futile. So he pursues wisdom, madness, which is just crazy stuff, and folly, which is goofing off. He pursues all those things. Verse, uh, verse 1 of chapter 2. 
I said to myself, go ahead, I will test you with pleasure and enjoy what is good. But it also, but it turned out uh, to be futile, he says. So pleasure was futile. Then he goes to pursuing in, in chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. All that my eyes desired, I did not deny them. I did not refuse myself any pleasure, for I took pleasure in all my struggles. This was my reward for all my struggles. When I considered all that I had accomplished and what, had, what I had labored to achieve, I found everything to be futile in a pursuit of the wind. You see, he pursues now wealth and possessions. And then in verse 18 of chapter 2, he says, I hated all my work which I labored under the sun because I must leave it to the man who comes after me. Now, that's a great verse. That's just, that's just great. You're going to like the book of Ecclesiastes. I'll tell you, you're going to like it. Uh, it may be a little confusing, and you, you want to make sure to take your time. But you're going to like it. Uh, it, it, is, it is raw, and it is real. I hated all my work, which I labored under the sun, or at which I labored under the sun, because I must leave it to the man who comes after me. Isn't that great? And then verse 23. For all his days are filled with grief, and his occupation is sorrowful. Even at night his mind does not rest. This, too, is futile. Work, he says, in and of itself, is futile. He says, I've done all that I can do, and now I'm just going to leave it to someone else, and I haven't gotten any rest over it. What in the world was the point of all that? That's what he's going to repeat. Everything is futile. He's going to talk about the fact that, that we can't fully grasp and understand all of life's mysteries. And so he's going to say any attempt just to try to grasp all of life's mysteries is futile. You'll never figure it all out. He also is going to talk about our inability to really change a whole lot about our world. You ever set out and say, I'm going to change the world? And then you quit the next day because you realize that's impossible. You can't do it. You can't truly alter the course of history. You cannot do it. Now that skepticism that you're going to see in this book of Ecclesiastes sounds pretty modern. Uh, many have turned to this book when they've experienced some disillusionment, maybe with the world, maybe with God. Uh, and, and so you're going to see that phrase repeated over and over. Everything is futile, or this too is futile. The next phrase that you'll see is, under the sun. What's the old saying? There is nothing new under the sun. You know where that comes from? Ecclesiastes. I told you, you're going to love this book. He may also use in some, uh, some phrases uh, an equivalent of this, under heaven. Um, he's going to contrast that with, with uh, being, on, uh, being in heaven. You've got, you've got uh, in heaven, you've got under the sun, which really just contrasts the two realities. God's dwelling places in heaven, man's dwelling places here on earth. And he's going to search out everything he can under the sun. He's going to look for everything that's done under heaven, verse 13 of chapter 1. He's going to evaluate all the resources that can be found under the sun. In chapter 2, verse 11, he references that. And he's going to ultimately say that everything that's done under the sun, in verse 17, therefore I hated life because the work that was done under the sun was distressing to me, for everything is futile and a pursuit of the wind. He is going to search out everything possible and realize that he will say man gains nothing for all of his efforts under the sun. He's going to say that the earth goes on forever all in, its, in its futility. He's going to say that nothing new can take place under the sun. Verse 9 of chapter 1. There is nothing new under the sun. So essentially... He is going to search the earth and all that it has to offer and show us the emptiness that comes without a practical faith in God. 
That's what he's going to show us, everything under the sun. The third thing is pursuit of the wind. Now, if you have an NIV, New International Version, I have to admit to you that I went off script just a little bit. I typically preach from what's called the Holman Christian Standard Bible. And I went off script and stole the title for this series from the NIV. So if you're an NIV fan, there you go. You got to name the series. Because it says, a chasing after the wind. Chasing the wind. I just thought that sounded better than pursuing the wind. And I, you know, anyway. So, so in, in the translation that I'm using, it says, a pursuit of the wind. Maybe your version says something a little bit different. You look at verse 14 of chapter 1. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun and have found everything to be futile, a pursuit of the wind. What he's experiencing in his time is similar to what we see in our time. People chasing after all kinds of things, striving to get ahead in the game of life, trying to exercise some control over their lives. You look at the hours that are worked trying to get ahead. There are some in this room today who probably work more than you know you should, but you feel as if that's the only way you're going to catch that rabbit going around the track. That's it. And the more you work, the further behind you get, which makes you work even more thinking, now I've got to catch up. Think about the hours that we work. He would say, that's just a pursuit of the wind. Think about the dollars that are spent on stuff that really you can never hold on to. We were talking in our home at dinner yesterday about uh, the evolution of, of uh, home movie playback devices. And, and uh, the earliest thing that I can remember, uh, now again, I would assume many of you probably uh, remember these things as well, is the old reel-to-reel thing. You know, that you've videoed your home movies on and, you know, you kind of had these jumpy movements through the whole thing, you know, and, and, and you didn't really have much sound to it. And you had a little small speaker on the whole thing. And, and then it went, I remember, I remember thinking this was so cool when, when one of my friend's parents had some early laser disc kind of thing. I, it was like the disc was like this big or something and you put it in. And it was just, it was, I don't know, it was kind of strange, didn't last long. And then we went to the VCR. Some of you hanging on to your VCR. Some of you still still trying to figure out how do you set the timer to record on the thing. <laughs> no idea, you know. I don't know what. To, anyway, you're still trying to figure that out. More power to you. God bless you. Uh, and then we went to DVDs. Okay, you know we we love that. Now now you've got everything that is in digital form. You've got stuff you can just stream from the internet, actually through your TV. You've got. Uh, it, you know, things like like I said, called Netflix. You've got stuff you can just download a movie and play it anywhere you want to on your phone and so on and so forth. Some of you watching the movie right now, but <laughs> but you've got it all. You got everything that you could ever imagine. The dollars that are spent on all those kinds of things to get ahead and and so on and so forth, thinking that if we're just smart enough and we can just improve technology enough that we can control the universe. That we're now in control. That little remote you've got does anything. I got one remote that controls about four devices. And I feel good about myself when I'm using that. Just slide that thing over and all that. I mean, man, I'm good. But our goal, it seems, is if we just improve technology, if we're just smart enough, that somehow we'll figure out all the solutions to life and we'll get our minds around it and we'll be able to control it. 
If we can just explore all that there is. We think of NASA and the budget that NASA has. Billions and billions of dollars. We just landed on Mars. We want a curiosity. Isn't that such a great term for that particular spaceship? Curiosity. When you boil it down, though, in some ways, what we're trying to do is to explore and to understand and to somehow harness and control the universe. I don't have anything against NASA. You may be a NASA freak and you love it, and that's great, and I like looking at that kind of stuff too. But, but at its heart, apart from the Lord, we are simply just trying to harness and control the universe. What you're going to get in Ecclesiastes is that there is no way to do that, and if that's what you're chasing, then you are chasing the wind. And I wonder how much of what you and I pursue on a daily basis is that pursuit of the wind. You evaluate your life for a couple of seconds and you see what is non-eternal. I mean, what really, you're just going to hand off to someone else and it doesn't matter. We feel so irreplaceable. And yet you replaced somebody who was probably pretty good. How many things of little significance do we devote hours upon hours and money and time and so on to things that are just really insignificant? Maybe they matter, yes, but in the grand scheme of things, they're insignificant. Or, or things that are just petty. You think about, I, I saw a commercial, I was watching uh, Ocean's Eleven, and saw a commercial for one of those shows about real housewives. Now everybody, all the ladies can put their heads down. Oh, I don't watch that. Anyway, all right, if you don't watch it, it's supposedly reality shows about real housewives and various parts of our country except they are so rich it's unbelievable i'm like that's not real uh, you know come on come on to our house and see the mess it's not real you know and so you know but at the same time you think about all the things that we pursue that are just so petty when you see a commercial for a show called real housewives and all they do is just fight back and forth at each other over nothing so they can have a tv show and make millions of dollars think about it Petty. How many times do we deceive ourselves into thinking that what we're pursuing we can actually catch, and if we actually caught it, we'd actually want it? I wonder where has your search for meaning and significance taken you? The, the, the next thing that you'll see repeated is this, uh, maybe a couple of different wordings, but I have observed or I saw or I have seen. You're going to see that repeated. The backbone of this teacher's uh, style here is to present these first-person narratives over and over. I have observed, or I saw, or I have seen, and then he'll go on to explain what his evaluation is of what he saw. Yogi Berra, the famous catcher who's probably known more for the things that he said, once said, you can observe a lot just by watching. Let that one sink in, he'll get it tomorrow. <clears throat> But here's what this teacher will do. He will observe a lot just by watching. And he's going to tell you all that he has seen. It's interesting. What he begins with is not this call to obedience to the Lord. You need to get your life in line and you need to obey. What he does is he puts us all on common ground. And he says, you know what? I, I've, I've observed this about life. You know what? I, I saw this happening. I, I have seen these things. And we all could just sit back and say, you know, I've seen that too. I've, I've, I've paid attention to that. I, I was watching for that the other day. He asked everyone to consider, and this is such a great question that sort of 
emerges from the book of Ecclesiastes. He asks really everyone to consider, have you learned to cope with life as it really is? When you look around and you see it, how you doing? Have you learned to cope with life as it really is? Because life as it really is is all it really is. You can make up some fantasy world and pretend that as if your life is not really what it is, and yet you look around and you say, this is, it is what it is. <laughs> you learn to cope with life as it really is. And so he explores these things, and he looks at wisdom and madness and folly as we've seen, and he realizes that of all the things that he has seen, nothing can bring joy and fulfillment for more than a short period of time. He's going to say that's all futile. It's all a pursuit of the wind. What are you doing, he says. Nothing he... He has observed, he will come back to over and over, can prevent death. Now, I don't have to have us all take a field trip over to the cemetery to show you and demonstrate to you the absolute empirical data that says one out of every one person will die and move across the street. I don't have to show you those things. You know that stuff. So he's going to say all this stuff that you're pursuing, nothing can ultimately prevent what will happen to all of us, which is death. Those are some observed things, or some, some uh, repeated phrases, rather. I observed, I saw, I've seen. I want to give you quickly a few things we can learn from the book of Ecclesiastes. I want to close with these things this morning, and you'll see the one at the bottom of your bulletin that's in a little box. That is the main point today. Do not turn your mind off before we get there. The first is this. Life is complex. Somebody said, Amen. Life is complex. You don't have to be told that. In fact, this is something you already knew. You knew this walking in. Life can be difficult, to say the least. Life can be very confusing. And as I told you, you'll love the book of Ecclesiastes because it does not deny the complexity of life. There are no simple solutions offered to you in the book of Ecclesiastes. In fact, there are warnings against simple solutions and formulas. Life cannot be lived according to formulas. Now, we like formulas. We like to figure that if I just do this and this and this and I avoid that, then everything will be exactly the way that I think it should be. And I doubt there's a single person here living the reality of what you think life should be. There's probably not a person here or anyone you know who, if they're, t if they're totally honest, would say, oh, life is just exactly the way I think it should be. I just followed this path, and 2 plus 2 just equals 4 every single time. 2 plus 2, in many cases, equals something you can't even decipher. What? That's not even a number. Like 2 plus 2 equals B. Think about it. Isn't that life? That's what you're going to find in the book of Ecclesiastes. We look for those solutions and those simple things, but a complex life like the one that we live in can't be broken down into five easy steps to a better marriage. Or three easy steps to a great life. You, you can't boil that stuff down. It's not that simple. I, I want to read you a couple of quotes from a, from a book called Searching for God Knows What. And this guy, on his quest to find meaning, offers the following. He says, formulas offer control. Formulas seem better than God because, because what we really want is control, not a relationship with God. So if the difference between the Christian faith and all other forms of spirituality is that Christian faith offers a relational dynamic with God, then why are we cloaking this relational dynamic in formulas? He goes on, he says, if the gospel of Jesus is just some formula to obey in order to get taken off the naughty list and put on the nice list, 
then it doesn't meet the deepest need of the human condition. It doesn't interact with the great desire of my soul, and it has nothing to do with real life. If there were a formula to life, he says, don't you think Jesus would have given it to us? It's not a formula to life. And and so I want to say this to you. If you are not going to live with your head in the sand, if you're going to actually acknowledge that, yes, life is complex and it's not a formula, then you are going to need a relationship with a God who created life. Not just some system of hoops to jump through in your attempt to relate to Him. You need a relationship, an ongoing deep relationship with Him. You're going to need more than just coming to church. You're going to need more than just singing a song or two or dropping a few dollars in the offering plate or just shaking hands with people when I say, welcome someone to Elm Grove. You're going to need more than just listening to a sermon and then going home and thinking that's the formula for relating to God. Because life is complex, you and I need a loving and sometimes messy relationship with the one who created life. It's not simple. Life is complex. You need the one who has the complex answers, the one who created it. Secondly, life has limits. Life has limits. The teacher in Ecclesiastes talks about this constantly. There's a limit to what wisdom can do, he will say. There's a limit to what wealth can do. There's a limit to what work can do. There's a limit to what pleasure can do. He'll say we're limited by time. We're limited by our power to change things, our ability to understand things. He'll say ultimately we're limited by death. Because what he'll say is the wise man and the fool, you know what happens to both of them? They die. The good people, the bad people, the rich people, the poor people, the smart people, the dumb people, you know what happens to all of them? They die. And that's what he's going to tell you. You are limited by death if you feel limited by nothing else. Now, the problem is we want to be like the superheroes we see in our movies. No limits. Coming up at the Calvert City Drive-In, just so you know, in a few weeks, they're going to have a double feature. Batman and Spider-Man. Well, that's the greatest thing ever, is it not? Are you kidding me? You get popcorn and the whole deal. It's like five bucks a person. It's incredible. I mean, seriously, think about that night. All the people who will live vicariously through Batman. I had a dream I was Batman once. It was incredible. It was the greatest dream of my whole life. I had the belt and all the shields and all this stuff. It was great. They're going to live vicariously through Batman and then through Spider-Man. You know why? Because those guys seem to have no limits. They're not bound by what we seem to be bound by. I mean, how long has Batman been about 27 in great shape? I mean, think about it. Well, I don't even know when Batman started. Sometime back in the 60s, probably, something like that. Adam West, the first Batman, all right, kapow, you know. He's the first guy, and then now he's just, Batman's still like 27 years old, great shape, just incredible. No limits. Spider-Man's been 19 for a long time. Peter Parker, man, he never ages. He's incredible. That's what we want, but that's not reality. I, it, I really believe that there, there is no greater obstacle to us living well than our denial of our own humanity and finite nature. If we would come to grips with the fact we have limits in life, let me live within those limits, we would probably experience greater joy and fulfillment just because of that. We have limits. You'll find that. In the book of Ecclesiastes, also, life can be wasted. Life can be wasted. This is a tragedy that many people experience. Life can be wasted on the things that don't last. I mean, think about what was so important to you 10 years ago. If you can even think about and remember what what it was. I wonder if you can. 
probably can because something really was important. It really did matter. But many of the things that were so important 10 years ago, you can't even remember why. Because it didn't last. It didn't matter. Life can be wasted on things that don't last. Life can be wasted on things that are meaningless. Just trivial. Eh, no big deal. Life can be wasted on, on things that can only produce a temporary joy or fulfillment. Our college students are coming back this set. And I got in a conversation, uh, it was actually Wednesday night here, about many of the things that I observed, <laughs> I saw, I have seen uh, when I was in college. And, the, and all the effort and energy that's expended on things that bring temporary joy and fulfillment. That looking back now, if those folks were honest, they'd say, what a waste. I wasted that time. Life can be wasted if it's spent on yourself as well. That's a tough one. Selfishness is so subtle. It's so subtle. We all deal with it. I do too. You think about the things that people waste their lives on today, on fame. You know, it takes less now to be famous than ever before. You can simply be famous for being famous. Sort of an oxymoron, but it's true. You can be famous for doing something really stupid. When it used to be that people just looked at you like, what are you doing now? Oh, is that incredible? Look at those crazy, stupid things this person does. And it goes viral on YouTube, and we watch it, and, you know, and we, we waste our lives on positions. We lay, waste our lives on money and on stuff and on trying to stay young. Do you realize if you look around that we don't stay young? And I mean that. And I praise God for those folks who still lead the way, and I really mean this from the bottom of my heart, that are in their 70s and 80s and 90s, that still stay strong and stay focused on what God would have them do. Because we're not going to stay young. You delude yourself if you think that you can have enough surgeries or enough makeup or enough whatever. Keep yourself in good enough shape that you'll just somehow defy the laws of nature. wonder what you're wasting your life on right now. If you're honest. Finally, and, and the main truth that I want you to get in this introduction of Ecclesiastes, which will be the truth that will guide us, the rest of this study is that life apart from Jesus is like chasing the wind. Now, don't close everything up just yet. Because I want you to hear this part. If you've heard everything else that's great, you may say, oh, that's, yeah, I get that. If you miss this, trust me, you've missed the point. Don't miss it. Ecclesiastes is an explanation of what life is like and the emptiness that it brings apart from God. That's the, that's the message of the book. Because on one level, this teacher we find in the book, he's exactly right. The world without God is meaningless. It is a chasing of the wind. But his words are not the ultimate message in the book. The author, who comes in at the end, points us to the Lord and says, fear God. That's what he says. He points us back to what will keep us from chasing the wind. And so once we stop pretending that the things of this world are enough for us, once we stop pretending that, we're in position to hear the good news that we don't have to chase the wind anymore. You don't have to keep chasing the wind. You don't have to keep being that dog running around the track trying to catch that rabbit. We can know the one who created the wind in the first place, the one who offers us true joy and fulfillment and meaning 
and so much more, both in this life and certainly in the life to come. We as Christians, and we read this book, we understand that we know more about God and what he's done since that book than this particular teacher did. He didn't have the hope, it seems, of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We know about the resurrection and new life. We know about the once and for all forgiveness of sin that comes at the moment of our conversion when we place our faith in Jesus Christ. He sort of ends, this teacher does, on a hopeless note that death is just the end. You know, as Christians, as believers in Jesus, death is not the end. It's just a gateway to what real life is to be for us for all eternity. We know that Jesus restored meaning to wisdom. Wisdom is not pointless, but it only has real meaning when it's bound up in Jesus Christ. Work is not pointless, but it only has meaning when you work as if to the Lord, not as to man. Love and life are not pointless. But unless they're guided and directed by Jesus Christ, you are indeed chasing the wind. And Jesus also brought new meaning to death because he conquered it and was raised again to offer us salvation and eternal life, showing us that death is not the end, but only the beginning. The teacher gives us all kinds of things about work and about anxiety and so on and the futility of the world. And the New Testament will show us that if you're worn out by life, that rest comes in Jesus Christ. The New Testament will show us that if you're anxious about things, then trust the God in Matthew chapter 6 of the lily and of the sparrow. If you're frustrated about the futility of life, understand, yes, the world is under a curse, it says in Romans chapter 8. But Jesus became that curse for us by dying on a cross to deliver us from the curse so we no longer have to live under it, even though we remain in the world that's under it. We have the good news that this teacher does not present to us. That though the world is cursed because of sin, Jesus delivered us from it. But we need to understand the truth of the book of Ecclesiastes. It's a great book. I think you'll love it. We need to understand that life without Jesus is truly futile and meaningless. We need to know that the complexities of life cannot be addressed with simple formulas and cliches. We need to know that only Jesus can meet our deepest spiritual need for forgiveness and being made clean before God. Only He can do that. We need to know that only Jesus brings true joy and provides real meaning in this life and the next. And we need to know that relationship with Him is possible, but only through faith. You don't have to be that dog chasing the rabbit anymore. You don't. Not because I've told you. Because Jesus Himself has expressed it and has lived it and has shown us. So this morning, as we will close in just a second with a song, maybe today you need to repent, turn from sin, turn to the Lord in faith, saying, I give you my life. I don't want to chase the wind anymore. I want to chase you. I want you. I want to come with you. And I give you my life. And yes, I confess my sin. And yes, that's why you went to the cross. So I believe in your death for my forgiveness and you say that's that's the decision i make today maybe you're the person who say you know what i've given my life to jesus but i tell you what <laughs> ecclesiastes is talking to me maybe there's something today you repent of
Or maybe there's a person in your life that as I've talked about these things this morning, that that person comes to mind. And you say, man, I want to get on my knees and pray for that person. Because they're chasing the wind. And even if they catch it, they have nothing. So maybe this morning it's time to repent. Give your life to the Lord. Maybe to ask Him to forgive you of some sin of chasing the wind or to pray for that person. We'll, in just a minute, open our altar. You may come and pray if you'd like, and you get on your knees and come pray with me. Whatever you want to do, pray right there at your seat. That's okay. But I want to pray for us, and I'll ask you to stand, and we'll close with a song. And so during that time, I pray that you do business with the Lord. You respond however it is He calls you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray, Lord, that you would convict us where we are chasing the wind. Help us to see it and turn us from it. We pray in Jesus' name.